I remember right after I graduated high school and realized that I was done playing ice hockey in a competitive sense, I turned to the senior leagues, you know, bar hockey, so to speak. Right. And for the first time, I had a chance to play in the top level of the bar hockey. And I was really curious how it was going to do. And I was really nervous. And the guys were really great in the locker room. And maybe 30 seconds into the game, I had scored a goal. At some point in the second period, I scored another goal. At the very beginning of the third period, I scored a hat trick. And then really late in the game, I scored an empty net goal. And I had scored four goals. And remember, I was super pumped. And then I got back into the locker room. And as exciting as excited as I was, I realized that I had just done that against a bunch of guys who were really just happy to be out of the house away from their <laughs> wives and uh, content to uh, slam down a six-pack after the game. I can't imagine what Josh Hamilton, especially – after everything he's been through, right, felt like the other night after he had four home runs in a major league game and had another hit, which was a double, and had eight eight RBIs, really the best single fantasy baseball game I, I think I've ever heard of. But we'll get to that in a second. Welcome to the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. It is episode number 18 of season two, May 9th, 2012, a really special day here at the Sportscasters. Our first guest today is undoubtedly, if they ever make one, will be one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of sports writing. And that's Frank Frank DeFord. Frank is uh, currently out there promoting a book called Over Time, uh, My Life as a Sports Writer, kind of his memoir, a look into his illustrious career as a sports writer, of course, you probably know him as well from his reporting on real sports. And uh, we're just so, so grateful and honored to have Frank on the show today. And he's not the only guest, and the other ones are really good too. We also have John Wertheim on the show. John is one of our favorites, another guy who is really at the pinnacle of his profession now. He's one of the best sports writers out there. And Dan Wolken is on the show, and the reason I wanted to have Dan on when we had Fred or Frank is because I think it's a really great juxtaposition. You look at Frank DeFord, who is the ultimate kind of classic newspaper guy, and then you think of Dan Wolken, who writes a column for a daily newspaper that's an app. Right. So I just thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition. So we're going to talk to Dan later in the show about the NBA and the NHL playoffs and some of the college football stuff that's going on. We're going to talk to Frank about his kind of incredible career, and we're going to talk to John about all the great stuff that we usually talk to John about. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Our email address is sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find all that information on our website, www.sports-casters.com. A couple other things to announce. Don't forget about our episode last week, Season 2, Episode 17. really fun episode that we did with Richard Deitch, Matt Crossman, and Dave Meltzer. Uh, for the first time, we really got into some MMA, some professional wrestling talk with Meltzer, which was really fun. And Richard Deitch is kind of the ultimate ball buster that comes on the show. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And we kind of enjoy 
that aspect of them. Also, our uh, Football Nation podcast is going along swimmingly. Episode 6 of that podcast is going to appear the day after we're recording this one. So Thursday, I suppose. And we have a really great guest there as well, Greg Cassell. He spent 32 years as an executive producer at NFL Films. We're going to chat with him about what it's like to work at NFL Films and to work for uh, Steve Sable and, and his father, Ed, who were inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame last year. So we have some really good programs for you. And we have a big announcement later. We'll do it during the book club up, update as to what our show is going to look like next week on Sportscasters Proper. But before we can get to all of that, we really should start things off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so since we've been gone, uh, Jared Weaver has thrown Major League Baseball's second no-hitter. Not a perfect game. He walked the guy in the second inning. But really, an unbelievably dominant performance with his parents in the stands. A great night for the Angels franchise. The Angels have gotten off to not exactly the start to the season I think they hoped after they spent the money that they did spend in the offseason, but... You know, Weaver has really turned himself into being one of the one of the good pit, if not great. I'm going to say great. One of the great pitchers in the American League right now. He's four and zero at the one point six one ERA, and uh, I don't know. It's a second no hitter this season. Uh, came against the Twins. Twins are the worst team in the majors this year up to this point. Doesn't mean they weren't trying like heck to get a hit. You know what, though? You know how usually when you see a no-hitter, there's like those one or two defensive plays that are like, wow, really saved him. wasn't like that here. Weaver really, really mowed him up and and knocked him down. And then the other thing with the Angels is finally, uh, finally, after over over a ton of at-bats, Albert Pujols hit his first home run as an Angel and what has to be an enormous weight. Lifted off his back. So. It's about time. How many games into the season are we now? About 30? About 30, yeah. yeah. So a really long, rough stretch for Pujols. So two interesting things for our buddy Adam Rank in the Anaheim, Los Angeles. Angels, Jared Weaver, no-hitter, Albert Pujols, first home run. All right, you heard the highlight earlier, Josh Hamilton. Uh, like we said, a guy that's dealt with some struggles in his life, but not the other night where he hit four home runs against uh, the Orioles. Interestingly enough, they were all two home, two run home runs, all with the same guy, Elvis Andrus, on base, and all with Elvis on first base. Uh, he's the 16th player in history to have a four home run game. I'm not sure about the specific stat of having a four home run game, all with or four two run game with the same guy on the base or anything like that. But just a nice, nice accomplishment for Josh Hamilton. And you talked about how. You had done it against people that were just happy to be out there. By the end of that game, it almost looked like the Orioles were just kind of happy to be out there and wanted to have a beer after the game. You know, it's have a beer. Interesting comment <laughs> there. Uh, you know, Josh Hamilton is going to have the most interesting free agent negotiation maybe in the history of baseball this summer. Yeah. You know, he's a free agent. He's a guy who's a former first overall pick by the Tampa Bay Rays, 
went down to the minor leagues, started off well, ended up going to a really dark place in his life, battling drugs and alcohol, to the point where the, the Rays basically washed their hands of him and sent him to Cincinnati for a fresh start. He ended up not being in the plans in Cincinnati and has found a home in LA, or excuse me, in Texas, where he's been the driving force to two straight American League championship teams. But he's also had a couple of times in Texas where he's kind of fallen off the wagon. There was that one time where there was some pictures on TMZ of right, him in a yeah. bar with some girls. And then there was this time last summer where he fell off the wagon and had a drink. So it's going to be interesting because under normal circumstances, this guy would command a huge amount of sure, money in the sure, open market. Yeah. But how do you balance that with what is a slight risk of him not being able to maintain his sobriety. Yeah, I have no idea. That's similar to drafting a college player that has, like, quote-unquote character issues. Maybe someone that got in trouble in the past. I mean... And Josh is a great guy. He's really he's really easy to root for. Yeah. I mean, he's he's found that, that higher power, which is one of the 12 steps. You know, he's a man of faith. He's not too overbearing about it, though, like some people can be. <laughs> but he just strikes you as really kind... Uh, he's really polite. He's really root- he's really easy to root for. I recently read his book, and it's not going to win any literary awards, believe me. But it was a really honest and just a real honest history of what he's been through. And you just want him to someday, at the end of all this, to be one of the great success stories in drug recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody that anyone who ever falls into that can look up to and say... Even if I'm at my darkest moment, it's not over. I can still get back to being what John, Josh Hamilton is. So it'll be interesting this summer. There was a report yesterday that his agent in Texas has opened up negotiations. So maybe they can come to something before it gets to that point. Probably the best thing for Josh is to stay in Texas because he knows that he can. his life is set up there. He's in a routine there. So that's probably the best for him. But... I'm speculating. I don't know what's best for Josh Hamilton. I just hope whatever, wherever he ends up, it is the best, and he continues to have the run that he's had so far in his uh, career since being yeah, on the wagon. Right. right. I agree. That was my thing. Oh, that was your thing. Of course. <laughs> All right. Well, my second thing is that on Sunday, Andy Pettit is going to make his Major League debut. Uh, for the Yankees. That's after he spent last Sunday in Rochester, New York, just down the street from us. I heard, yeah. Pitching a AAA baseball game in front of a record crowd in Rochester. They sold over 10,000 tickets. They moved the game and canceled another game or yep, something Yep, the, like the Bisons ended up not playing. Right. They moved the game from the scranton Wilkesbury. It was scranton Wilkesbury against Pawtucket. So neither of those teams are Rochester. Right, okay. Right? So they moved the game to the stadium where Rochester plays because it could accommodate more people. They packed 10,000 into the seats, and then they stole standing room and bleacher seats. Okay. They got over 13,000 people there uh, to see a minor league baseball game on a Sunday. And I guess the bigger story is, is that it was a disaster for Andy Pettit. He didn't pitch very well. Uh, he gave up a bunch of runs, gave up a bunch bunch of hits. He ended up pitching uh, five innings, and his final line was five innings, eight hits, five runs, three earned, two walks, five Ks, 95 pitches, 62 strikes. It's not good. 
it's not great, but I guess, you know, it's time for him to now go to the major leagues and see what he's got there because it's not like he's a guy who needs to prove himself in the minor leagues. No, right. He just needed to get some work in, and now he needs to see if what he has left. Did he feel good after the game? You know, I, I had heard him say that he was just felt like he was ready. Okay. That was basically what he said. You know, he's ready for ready for the chance, and he assumed that it would be coming soon, and now the announcement has come that soon is now. Uh, Brian Cashman made the announcement that he'll start on Sunday. Uh, George Rowdy, Yankees manager, says, quote-unquote, I'm excited. I think it'll be a great day at the stadium. Uh, he says that the reports have been pretty good, despite the fact that in four minor league starts, Pettit was 0-2 with a 3.71 ERA, so he didn't even record a win. But look, at Pettit didn't have anything to prove down there. He was just getting some work in, maybe not even throwing his best stuff. You know, who knows yeah, what sure. his game plan was there. Um, and uh, he will, uh, Yankees are counting on him because they need pitching right now. Um, they need pitching badly. So Seems it'll be, to be their story every year. With yeah, sure does. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. All right, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out as well. An eighth-grade kid named Keeling Pilaro. Keeling being a an Irish or Scottish name. Let me get this right. Anyway, he is a Ireland, Irish name. Okay. He's an eighth-grader from Southampton, New York. Uh, born in Ireland, moved to New York. He's played for the Southampton High School field hockey team for the past two teams, and he's the only boy on this team. Uh, well, on March 30th, the local high school governing body there, Section 11, ruled that he would no longer be allowed to compete. Basically, uh, the rule that he violated was significant ad- having a significant adverse effect upon the opportunity of females to participate successfully. Hmm. They're arguing that he was too good to play and that he is basically denying other girls a chance to play. Um, well, a girl, right? I mean, it's only a one girl, spot. Right. But that said, a little background, he was raised in Ireland, and I guess it's normal for men to play field hockey there. He has dreams of playing for the U.S. men's national team someday. I didn't know they had a men's field hockey team, so today I learned that. Uh, And their team didn't have a JV or a boys field hockey team, so basically because of Title IX, if if you're not offered a sport, you're allowed to try out for the other sport as long as you... Yeah, I always thought the awesome I always thought the rule was if you wanted to play football, was it you're a woman and there's no women's football, they got to let you try out for men's football. Right. And I thought it worked vice versa. It it does. Uh, the stipulation that they had was that he'd have to go before the organized organization's mixed competition committee every year to renew his eligibility. So first year on the team went fine. He once again uh, he played on the JV team. Then he went in front of the board again. This year, it was fine. He played this season and was bumped up to varsity. He played well, posting a team-high 10 goals, which isn't, they say in the article, not dominant by any means, but good enough to earn all-conference recognition. But apparently that was too much. At the end of the season, they told him he wouldn't be allowed to play next year. Now, like That's I said, he's an eighth-grade boy, but he's four foot nine, 82 pounds. So this kid isn't exactly beating up hurt these him. senior right. girls or anything like that. And it sounds like opposing players and coaches are all for him being there, being allowed to play. So uh, is this just like politics getting in the way of? Yeah, politics? but I don't know. I don't even know who would who would bring it up if everyone seems to be okay with it. 
Probably one person blew a whistle somewhere or something. The family is going to appeal it, and they hired an attorney, and they're going to basically go on the fact that there's no tryouts for this field hockey team and that no players are cut. So really, other than maybe playing time, he's not negatively impacting any of the teammates, and all of his teammates seem to like him too. So What's his name? Keeling? Keeling. Keeling Pilaro. Well, that's bullshit, Keeling, and I hope uh, I hope it works out for you because... If this was the other way, people would be jumping and screaming. And I, I sure would. I sure. Th- I I'm of. I think everyone has the right to compete at whatever sport they're best at. If there's a girl who's great at football, I don't have any reason. Sure. There was a girl on my high school hockey team one year. I didn't have a problem with it. You know. And then by the second year, they had created a women's team, and she preferred to play that, and that was great for her. Right, but I mean, I didn't have any problem with her being there. She was a good little player. She helped our team. This is, uh, yeah, and this kid's obviously helping their team. And this was on ESPN High School, the the section of their website with the high school sports. And apparently, they had a there's a video on there back and forth of J- uh, Jamel Hill and somebody else. And Jamel Hill actually is against, takes the side against the boy, which is very wow. not like her because yeah. But she has a reputation of being a little bit racist and sexist and. Well, if this all, doesn't help her case as far as that goes. If worse comes to worse, they could just watch Ladybugs, and uh, <laughs> he can dress up as a girl. That's right. And go out and play. But yeah, poor kid. Just wants to play his sport he's been playing since he's been five years old. All right, so Saturday it was Cinco de Mayo, and I was all pumped up to eat some tacos. Before I could do that, I had to wait for the damn horses to finally <laughs> walk into their stable there and, and run the Kentucky Derby. I love the Triple Crown. Uh, I'm not a big horse racing fan there's parts of it i don't understand but i love the drama of the races and i love it when we get someone who a horse and maybe i'll have another is that horse who can win the first one and then win the second one in baltimore and then be there in new york for a chance to win the triple crown which hasn't happened since i think 1978 so in our lifetime uh but interesting so i'll have another one the kentucky derby Kind of stole it there at the end. Uh, in the last, down the stretch, they yeah. came. He took over, won it. Interesting uh, kind of sub-fact is that there was a dead body found at Churchill Downs. And authorities say a man uh, who was killed, whose body was found early Sunday in a barn at Churchill Downs, was a worker at the track. He's identified as 48-year-old Aiden Fabian Perez, a Guatemalan native, according to Joanne Farmer, Chief Deputy Coroner. For Jefferson County, he was identified by his 19-year-old son, who also works at the track. There's suspicion of foul play. Wow. An autopsy is scheduled uh, for Monday, so that was a couple days ago. Uh, the police said at this point, we don't have anything pointing to the fact that this had any association with Churchill Downs or the Derby itself. We are still investigating at the stables and at the barn. Uh, he said the victim did sustain injuries that led us to believe he was involved in some type of altercation. Our ongoing investigation as to why would have specifically been at this location. Uh, they still don't have a suspect at this point. So kind of a sad sub-story, but you know what? It kind of made me think of uh, Luck, the uh, now-defunct show on HBO. It just yeah. felt like a... This year's Kentucky Derby was an episode of uh, luck. They had this beautiful race on a beautiful day at Churchill Downs, and it's marred by the fact that someone in the stables was killed, and 
They'll investigate it. So that we'll, is crazy. It sounds like a CSI or like a murder mystery because, I mean, not to be weird about it, but what better time to do something like that? Nobody's going to be paying attention to anything but the race, if especially if you're in the building there. So uh, sad story. And like you said, an otherwise beautiful day wrecked by something like that. All right. My last thing is probably something we that we could talk a lot more about and – Maybe we'll do that on our other on the Football Nation podcast. But Junior Seau uh, passes away from what looks like a suicide, uh, and that marks I think the sixth professional athlete to possibly be. I mean, his is still early on, so it's early. It's early to say, but to possibly be linked to CTE and suicide. But there's three hockey players, I believe, Rick Rippin, right? The three fighters, uh, uh, right? Bugard and somebody else. Uh, I know Bob Probert died. You know, it's just a really sad story. Um, Seau, you know, he's fresh, and he was a star. Yep. And he's a guy everybody knows. Someone put it well on a local sports talk show, and they said the difference with Seau is he was in high def. These other guys we kind of have heard stories about or maybe remember playing, but most of it is memories, whereas Seau, he was on high def TV a couple of years ago, uh, playing football and not even, re- more recently than that, doing a show on MSG where he would right. do different things. And seemingly likable guy, uh, didn't seem to be a guy dealing with depression, died eerily, uh, similar to Dave Duerson, who shot himself in the chest so he could have his brain tested. Right. And it's, you it's, know, it's just such a sad thing in the. The press conference that his mother his had was, there, was yeah. just absolutely horrifying. Um, I listened to the 911 tape. I wish I never did. That was yeah. horrifying. Just really sad. And it's just an awful story. And Right. I mean, at this point, like I said, it's, it's kind of, I'm sure you've heard everything about this story that you could, but. All we wanted to do was say, Godspeed, Junior Seau, rest in peace. Sure. Hopefully you're in a better place. And hopefully the league uh, can find a way to make your death a positive for right. players in the future. Yeah, that's the only thing I was going to add. Like I said, we could probably talk about this for a full two-hour podcast, but they, safety somehow needs to catch up with the sports. I mean, these guys, like I said, I joked about how big and strong uh, the running back, Trent Richardson, yep. was at looked at the draft, and that's no joke. I mean, if that guy Dan ran, Shanka called him the the Hawk. Or the Hulk, Incredible Hulk on our other I mean, podcast. I mean, if he ran straight at me, he would literally probably kill me. And these guys are running straight at each other and tackling each other. And their speed and size has gotten bigger. The equipment hasn't gotten all that much better. So they got to do something. That's the bottom line. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but someone needs to find one. Rest in peace, Junior. Absolutely. All right, we're going to be right back with Frank DeFord. Our next guest is from Baltimore, Maryland, and is a graduate of Princeton University. After college, he began working at Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior contributing writer. He is also a weekly commentator for NPR's Morning Edition and is a regular correspondent at the HBO show Real Sports. He has been named Sports Writer of the Year by his peers six times and twice named Magazine Writer of the Year by the Washington Journalism Review. He is one of two authors to have more than one piece published in the Best American Sports Writing of the Century Anthology, 
and has won an Emmy and a Peabody Award for his television work. He has authored 18 books, including his memoir, Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer. A warm sportscaster is welcome to one of the faces of the Mount Rushmore of sports writing, Frank DeFord. How are you doing today, Mr. DeFord? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for putting me up on the mountain, Steve. Oh, I couldn't imagine. Who, who would be up there with you? Who would be the other oh, three? Oh, no. <laughs> I'll let you make that decision. There have <laughs> been some very good sports writers through the years, and I think uh, today, as a matter of fact, uh, there are probably more good sports writers than ever. I wish sometimes we wouldn't get so inundated with uh, numbers and statistics, but there are a lot of guys writing sports today who are very, very good. Who do you like to read? Well, I think that uh, Sports Illustrated, I mean, I have to start with them. Uh, I think there are any number of, of good writers there. Scott Price, Tom Verducci, John Wertheim, Gary Smith, I, and I've probably left out a couple that I shouldn't have. Um, Jenkins. I, I think I think really um, Sports Illustrated is still the elite of the profession um, because you don't see as many columnists these days as, as you used to getting the chance to write. The way that uh, the way that they used to, but this, the the profession is peopled with with good writing. How did you know that now was the time to do the memoir? Ah, I was talked into it. I had no intention of doing a memoir. I don't. I mean, after all, I am seventy three. You're supposed to wait till you're old, I think, to write a memoir. <laughs> and I'm old. But um, Jeremy Donald, who's the editor of Sports Illustrated, wanted me to write a chapter, just a chapter for a piece uh, in, uh, about the old days of Sports Illustrated, and then the publisher of uh, Grove Atlantic Monthly, uh, Morgan Entrican, said, well, why don't you turn it into a book? I said, no, nah, I don't have enough. And he suggested a few things, and then my wife said, yeah, you got enough. She's heard me tell these stories all through the years. The poor, uh, long-suffering woman. It was really my wife, I think, more than anybody else who convinced me to do it. You know, the memoir itself is a little bit different than what we're used to reading when we read a memoir. It's I think you even mentioned it in the book that you were going for more just kind of a collection of stories that you might tell someone if you ran into them at a bar. Why did you choose that approach as to as opposed to just the like A to Z retelling of your life? I wanted to be chatty about it. I, I, I wanted it to, to sound like, hey, I'm going to tell you a few stories now. It, it, it's, it's different. I mean, if you pick up one of my last novels, I don't think that Anybody could say it's the same guy who wrote this as wrote the memoir. It doesn't sound the same. It's a, it's a different voice, and the voice I wanted was one that was was friendly. And um, hey, sit down, sit down at the bar, or sit down around the campfire, and I'll tell you a few things. It, it um, I, I just didn't want it to be chronological. Another thing, Steve, and I have to say this: it's, it's a serious thing. Um, my daughter died in 1980 of cystic fibrosis, and I wrote a memoir at that time about her mostly, but of course it was about the family. And, and that was very, very serious, obviously, and very sad and very tragic. And um, the fact that I had written that and didn't have to dwell on, on that sad part of my life, I think made this a little bit happier than, than it would normally be. You, you know, Mr. DeFord, uh, I actually can relate to that, and that kind of hit home a little bit. I had an Uncle Andy who died before I was born of cystic fibrosis. Huh. And, uh, yeah, my grandmother, uh, my dad's mother, um, went through some of the same things that you went through. And when I told her, 
I was doing this book, she said to me, you know, he wrote one of the greatest books about his daughter who had died of cystic fibrosis. So my grandma had read that book and uh, it went a long way into touching her and helping her recover um, from the process after my uncle Andy had died. So I definitely wanted to thank you on her behalf for that. So, well, thank you. They, they, uh, continue to make wonderful, wonderful research. My daughter died at the age of, died at the age of eight. And, and today, uh, people with see after living and the median age is well up in the thirties. And, and I think they're going to find the, the real answer to it anytime now. So, I'm very, very encouraged by that. You know, a couple of years ago when I was in college, I was working a hockey school, and I believe we were at, we were at Camp John, which or somewhere in Maryland, um, maybe Rockford, Maryland, and there was a kid in my group who had cystic fibrosis, 12-year-old kid. He skated uh-huh. like the wind, and every couple hours, his mom had to take him off the ice and uh, and, and give him a little bit of a treatment, but... Other than that, I mean, he he was he was unbelievable. He blew me away, you know. So there's definitely been been great process made. So, well, people have a great deal of courage, and I saw that uh, with my own daughter. It gives me something sort of to live up to. I hope I can be as brave as she is if I'm ever faced with that kind of of, of difficulty. Well, you know, there's no way great great way to segue out of that. At least not one I know about. So I guess. We'll... <laughs> We'll just move on, and I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, was covering those the NBA in the early days. I know that Sports Illustrated was kind enough to kind of pull a section of the book out and and print yes. it in one of the issues, and it was about the early, as you call Bush, quote unquote, days of the NBA. How do you think the NBA got from where they were then to here? Was it the stars, uh, really? I'm sorry, I was going to say a lot of it had to do with television. I mean, it's simply the exposure. It moved to bigger cities. Um, when I started covering the NBA, it, 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 it had only been a year or two before when they had a team in a small town like Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Syracuse was still in the league. Um, and so by moving to bigger cities and by getting television, and I think basketball itself as a sport generally grew. If you looked at uh, college basketball back in the 1960s, it was not nearly um, the giant that it is today. So all of that had a lot to, uh, an awful lot to do with it. I, I think that um, almost all sports have grown uh, in visibility in the, in the years since then, and, and Americans seem to prefer team sports in particular. And, and I think that may have something to do with the fact that we move around so much <laughs> traditionally, and, and at least a, uh, if you have a, a city or a college that you can identify with. I, th- I think that you give give a team more attention, and basketball fits so very neatly into that. Have you been uh, watching the playoffs so far this year? I'm, I've been right. Th- most recently, I've been traveling and haven't been watching anything because I've been out on the road with the book. But I've been catching a little bit here and there. It's it's a very interesting playoffs in the sense that there haven't really been a whole lot of upsets. I mean, if you yeah, um, Chicago of course lost Derrick Rose, and so that's a uh, I don't even know if, if, if you call that an upset now that they're behind. But basically speaking, the best teams have won. And and there haven't been those kind of shocks that we could have expected in the past. Can you recall another time in covering the NBA where a team had 
dominated the regular season. They're a number one seed. They're preparing for a playoff push. And then just like that, first day of the playoffs, they lose their star. He tears his ACL, and then it's like over practically. I'm trying to think. You've got my mind going. And I'm sure it happened somewhere along the way. But I can't think of it. Off, off the top of my head, I can, you know, there have been a lot of number one teams that have gotten beaten, but not because somebody got injured. They've gotten beaten just because they got surprised. Right. But, but generally speaking, I, I do know this, that, that um, if you go way back to the 1950s, uh, the one year that the, that the Celtics lost, uh, I think it was the second or third year that Bill Russell was there because he was injured. So... It happens, but not quite as dramatically as what happened to poor Chicago this year. So you discovered Bobby Orr, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't discover him. What I did was I introduced him to the wider world, but I was very lucky to do it. And I knew nothing about hockey. I never. I don't. I, I'd seen a few hockey games in college, but I certainly couldn't tell you the difference between a blue line and a red line. But I heard so much about Bobby Orr from the Boston writers because I was traveling with the Celtics, not because I was traveling with the Bruins. The <laughs> Bruins were the worst team in the league, but because they were the worst team in the league, they had been able to draft this kid. And in those days, young Canadians were placed in what was called Junior A at the age of like 14. They were sort of taken away from their parents and their family. And and the the myth of Bobby Orr, the legend of Bobby Orr was already growing when he was a teenager. And so I would hear about it. This, this lifesaver is going to come and save the Bruins. And so I went back and told Sports Illustrated about it and, uh, and, and wrote the first story about Bobby when he finally did make it, or just before he made it to the, to, to the NHL, and that made me look a lot smarter than I really was, Steve. <laughs> Some, sometimes you get lucky. You know, one of the great things about being a sports writer is you get the chance to interact with these athletes, and I know that sometimes maybe the interactions aren't positive, but you've had some really great experiences. You were able to write Billie Jean King's autobiography, yeah. and you had a really long friendship, which you talk about in the book with Arthur Ashe. What did Arthur Ashe mean to you? Well, first of all, he was a good friend. I mean, you, 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 above all else, he, he, was, he was a good friend with a great sense of humor. And the first thing I say in the book about Arthur is that he does have a good sense of humor because he was so identified with serious causes and he died so tragically that I think people probably, some people probably had the wrong impression about him. And the wonderful thing about Arthur, he was just such good company. And, and I remember that as much as I remember anything else. He was a good friend a good person, and the fact that he did so much good with his life is, is just sort of icing on the cake. The other thing I remember about Arthur so very well is how bright he was. He was as smart and as, as, he was as smart an athlete as I ever knew. And I don't just mean in, in terms of raw intelligence, whatever his IQ was. He was aware. He knew what was going on. He was up with everything in the world, and he was, he was just a, a prize of a person. Do you think tennis and the sports media and, and us as a, of a society have done enough to keep his legacy alive in the years since his death? I think the fact that the tennis stadium is named after him uh, says, you know, the Arthur Ashe Stadium, that says a lot right there. Um, 
that people are always going to remember it. Yankee Stadium is still Yankee Stadium. It's not Babe Ruth Stadium. <laughs> and, and, and I think also that, sure, um, as time passes, we forget all kinds of people, or, or at least they fade away. But I think that Ash will always be remembered amongst the athletes who mattered the most. Now, I'm not talking about how good they were, but who really mattered. And so I think we're much more likely to forget certain champions than we are to forget someone like Arthur, who, who played such an important role beyond that of being on the court. Now, he wasn't that. I wouldn't say Arthur was a great player. I would say he's a very, very good player, but he wasn't in the top rank. But he'll be remembered a lot longer than some of the players who were better than he was, but who didn't make their mark in any other way. The sportscasters are here with the great Frank DeFord, humbling to even say that. He's in Philadelphia right now, and his book tour, his book is called Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer. Frank, in uh, 1988, you made a pretty big decision, and you left SI to become the editor-in-chief of the National Sports Daily. And last week on this podcast, we had, we had Dave Meltzer, who ah. was one of the writers, and he said... Yes, he said that you were just the best boss ever, and you know I'm. Well, not... you got to remember, Steve. I lost 150 million dollars. <laughs> I was, I might have been a good boss in some respects, but I couldn't save the newspaper. Do you ever and, wonder? And that's always been one of my regrets. I think, I think that as a newspaper, as a product, um, the the National was was terrific. I mean, I think it was first rate. Unfortunately, as a business, he wasn't even third rate, and there was nothing we we could do. Uh, we distributing a newspaper is a very, very expensive and, and and costly thing, which of course is why the internet works so well because all you have to do is push a button and it comes right into your room. We were we were sort of the last great adventure um, in in print journalism, and and unfortunately. Um, as good as we were, it, it just was, was too late to make it work. Do you ever wonder if you didn't have this opportunity in 1988, but you had it in 2008, how it would be different? I know that newspapers are not exactly thriving right now, but they're finding new ways to reach an audience with the Internet and with Twitter and with apps and things like that. And it seems like the National would have lent itself well to that. I mean, I see what Sports Illustrated is doing with new media, and, it, and it's fantastic the way the magazine comes to life, specifically on the iPad. Do you ever think, you know, what it would be like if you were able to have a second go with the National Now and use all of the things that are available to the sports media? I've thought, and I, and I can't come to a conclusion because, let's face it, there are so many newspapers that are going out of business because of the Internet. Um, could we have bucked that trend? Could we have found a way to meld all the new kinds of technology along with print to make it work? Maybe as the only sports newspaper, we could have done it. In the same way that, that the best newspapers... Uh, like, for example, the New York Times, seem to be working better because they're so valuable so that people do read them on the, are, are willing to pay money to read them on the Internet. I think that's the only way that you're going to make it work. I don't think we could have succeeded by giving it away on the Internet. Um, maybe with some kind of combination of print, like coming out 
you know, with a weekend edition in print and the Internet, maybe. But uh, I've seen too many newspapers, good newspapers, go down because of the new technology. I think we're just going through such a such a transitional period that really nobody has any idea how we're going to end up. You know, you mentioned that you were kind of forced into writing this memoir. I'm kind of shocked that after you've written it, no one's forced you onto Twitter to promote it. How have you been, <laughs> a- how have you been able to keep away from Twitter? <laughs> I'm a I'm not a very good technological person. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. What are the others? Uh, uh, Twitter. I've just <laughs> you name it. I've stayed away from it, and um, I probably should pay more attention to to technology out there and 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 try to catch up. I do have a website. I, I somebody talked me into that. Book dot com, but. Uh, but I think I've just tried. I think, first of all, the people that I'm trying to reach um, probably are not Twitter people. So, so I'm reaching my people my way. One way you reach your people, and this we can make this the last thing, is on Real Sports. And uh, I've always loved Real Sports. I look forward to watching it every month. I think that the reporting is really great, and uh, I really enjoy enjoy that hour on HBO. It's one of the main reasons I still pay for HBO now that the Sopranos and The Wire are gone. Uh, what what has being on uh, Real Sports done for your career? Has it has being on television and reporting those stories kind of revigorated you in some way or, or has it has it changed your outlook and, and how has it helped you become a better writer if it has at all? Well, I don't think it's helped me become a better writer because television is so visual that the writing is always subsidiary. I do think what it's done, it's been wonderful for me to be able to continue to tell stories. And that's really what I did have done all my life. I'm a storyteller. And whether I'm telling the story in a magazine or in a book or on television is almost, you know, incidental, which medium I'm, I'm, I'm using. And, and I've also enjoyed the fact that Writing is very lonely, Steve. You know, you're out there by yourself, and, and I spent a lot of years on the road by my, by myself alone. And and television, on the other hand, is very much a collegial process. You're working with people. You're working with producers. You're working with television crews. And in that sense, um, I've enjoyed it more. It's 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 uh, it's not quite so lonely. And and at the end end of the day. Um, all we're trying to do is, is get a good story, whether I write it or, or whether it, it appears on television. <laughs> this has been amazing. Uh, it's Frank DeFord. He's the author of Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. And he's on tour uh, for the book. He's going to be in cities like Denver, Washington, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, uh, Madison, Connecticut. The list goes on. And I'm sure you can find that schedule on his website, frankdefordbook.com, right? That's right. And uh, what uh, what else should our listeners know in terms of the book and Frank DeFord in general? Well, I, I just think I'm, I'm already looking ahead, trying to figure out what my next book will be. Um, I've been a writer all my life, Steve, and, and it's the one thing I can do, and it's something that makes me very happy. And and that's why um, I hope the memoir brings a little a little bit of joy and and in in certain places, a little poignancy 
to the people who read it. Well, I know I can speak for my grandmother in saying that the book you wrote, sharing your experiences with your daughter, sure brought her some joy and a little bit of faith in, in dealing with the tragedy in our family. And I have to say that I really enjoyed uh, the 20 minutes that we got to spend together today, and I really appreciate it. And we're very humble and appreciative, and thank you very much for taking the time to be on our show, Mr. DeForce. Steve, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for calling me. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think tomorrow it's like 7.45 or something like that. So it'd be later. But if your mom wanted to watch her for an hour or whatever it would take, I think that's what she, her earliest time was. Whatever, just, yeah, just whenever she calls you, figure it out. No, I don't, I don't care either. I believe so, yeah. All right. Love you, bye. Book club? All right. Very humbly, we want to thank Frank DeFord for being on our podcast today. That was a real honor. Uh, book club update today is going to do two things. One, we're going to update the book club, and two, we're going to make an announcement about what the show is going to look like next week. First things first, we mentioned that the book club book of the month will be a little bit different this month. Because we kind of be taking the authors as we could get them based on their stature. And we didn't want to end up with the, you know Hank Haney at the end of the month, and you know he's too busy for us. So. One of the book club books of the month that I highly recommend is Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. Um, Frank is just on, just one second ago. You heard our interview with him. It's really, it's a fantastic memoir. Um, It's very conversational. It's very much, hey, I'll meet you at a bar and I'll tell you all the stories about my career. And by the way, those stories include guys like Muhammad Ali and Bobby Orr. And some of the all-time great athletes who have ever competed in the games that we love to watch. Our second book club book of the month this month is John Smoltz, Starting and Closing, Perseverance, Faith, and One More Year. And it's basically John Smoltz's memoir, and John is going to be on our show next week. So let's kind of stop the book club update for a second and set up what will be a fantastic podcast next week. All right. Our first guest on Season 2, Episode 19, which we're going to record next Tuesday and will be available for you Tuesday evening, will be John Smoltz, as we mentioned, former pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Right. Our second guest is a guy that we were told by many people would never do this podcast because he doesn't even do Mike and the Mad Dog, and if he does do the podcast, maybe he'll do it in the off-season but he'll definitely will never do it during the season because he's too busy and he, he couldn't care less about you. Well, everyone who said that is wrong because next week on what is ultimately going to be a very special baseball version of the show, Tom Verducci is going to make his second appearance on the podcast. We're going to have a chance 
to talk to Tom about what he thinks about the great career of John Smoltz and also all the interesting things that have happened in the Major League Baseball season this so far this year, including a couple no-hitters, one being a perfect game. Uh, we'll talk to him about the Josh Hamilton free agency issue and all that. Now, our third guest is a friend of the podcast who reached out to us a couple weeks ago. He also has a book that is coming out next Tuesday, May 15th, same day that John Smoltz's book com- comes out. His book is called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. The author is Chris Ballard, who has been on our show before. He's really one of our – he's only been on one time, but I think of the guests that have been on once, he'd probably be one of our favorites. It was really a, a great interview, and we really enjoyed when Chris was on. And we really are honored to have the opportunity to have Chris on the day that his book com- is, is coming out. And he's going to join us in what is basically going to be a loaded-up baseball show. Uh, but we'll talk about the book that Chris wrote. And uh, Chris is also an NBA guy, mostly for for the magazine. So we'll talk to Chris about some of that, but mostly about his book, One Shot at Forever. All this stuff is available like on iTunes and um, Amazon and, and maybe even early in bookstores. But we're juggling a bunch of different stuff. And that's not to forget our other book club book of the month, the one that Don's even reading, that we're going to have at the very end of the month, Like Any Normal Day by Mark Cram Jr. Uh, That book is available in bookstores now. We're going to have copies of that to give away. We're going to have a copy of One Shot of Forever to give away, which we'll do next week when Chris Ballard is on the show. So... Usually the book club update is really short and there's not a whole lot going on, but this is the opposite of that because we have a pile of books on our desk. The last book that I want to tell you about today is an absolutely beautiful book that we got in the mail. Um, It's called Behind the Moves, NHL General Managers Tell How Winners Are Built. Uh, It was put together by a guy named Jason Ferris and the foreword is written by Brian Burke. Uh, the edition that we got is the Manhattan Limited Edition, and it actually comes, check this out, Don, with this kind of special numbered page. We have book number 17 of 150. It's autographed by former Rangers general manager Neil Smith. Wow. It's really one of the nicest books yeah, that, really cool. that we've, ever, that we've ever, ever got. And this book is only available online at NHLGMs.com. Wow. Uh, so we want to encourage you to go to NHLGMs.com uh, and, and check out this book. It's not really one that would lend us to a book club book of the month per se. It's more it's more of a coffee table book. Wouldn't you agree, Don? It definitely looks that way. Yeah, I mean it's more of a coffee table book, but – the website is www.nhlgms.com. The book is called Behind the Moves. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through it. I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna do a blog post about it. I promise that much to the guy for sending us one. But I really encourage you uh, to go out and check it out. Again, uh, nhlgms.com is the web address. So next week we will have on. John Smoltz, Chris Ballard, and Tom Verducci. Ballard's book is called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. John Smoltz's book is called Starting and Closing, 
Don't forget about our book club book of the month that we will interview Mark Cram Jr. on the 29th, Like Any Normal Day is the name of that book. And don't forget about our buddy, I think we could say that now, Frank DeFord, who was just on the podcast over time, My Life as a Sports Writer. We will be right back with John Wertheim. Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters by promoting the New York Times bestselling book, Scorecasting, The Hidden Influences Between How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. In a couple of weeks, he will be off to Paris to cover the French Open. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He's making his eighth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our good friend, John Wertheim. How are you doing today, John? Good, man. Eight appearances. How about that? Nope. Uh, no, good to be here. Bear, bear with me. You're getting uh, New York street noise in the background. We'll, we'll try to get through it. Ambient sound. So... Not that you ever play second to anyone, but our first guest on the show today was Frank DeFord. Uh And in his introduction, I said that I thought that Frank was a member of the Mount Mount Rushmore of sports writers. And he kind of of, uh, laughed that off a little bit. And uh, I asked him, I said, so... Who who uh, who would be on there with you? And, and he wouldn't answer really. Um, and eventually, I got him to answer who he likes to read now. And wouldn't you know it? The second name he gave me was John Wertheim. Oh come on! Serious? That's flattering to hear. He's uh, you know, he's you hate to even use this word, but he's serious role model material. And you know, as as I'm sure you. Experience as well as as good a writer as he is, he is a better person. I mean, he's just the most exceedingly decent, good guy you'll ever uh, you'll ever meet. So thanks to hear. He's, he's a great guy. John, who would be on your Mount Rushmore of sports writers? Of of contemporary or of all time? Well, I mean, you got to put four faces up there. So I guess you got to decide how you're going to make that balance. Oh, I mean, who, you know, Frank obviously makes the list. I, I tell you what, what Frank also, I mean, this, this was just, you know, this, this is a guy who has brought it for, you know, decades. But he also, I think it said very well of transitioning among platforms. He sort of did it before a lot of other people did. He was on TV, he does real sports, he's on NPR. I mean, you know, everybody in media these days, all the talk is sort of integrated content and structured content and being nimble platform the platform which which i agree with but really frank uh you know apart from being a great writer he was really on the vanguard of that as well um who else do i like it for yeah you know i mean wc hines and you can sort of go through the list we have uh you know everybody's favorite twitter presence uh buzz Bissinger makes that list i i i'm a big fan i mean if, if we call him a sports writer i'm a big david foster wallace fan but, you know, it's funny. I mean, media is obviously in a weird place right now, but I, I feel like sports writing as a craft has, has never been better. 
I mean, I feel like there's still an awful lot of work, awful lot of good. We have Jeff McGregor and, you know, at Sports Illustrated, Gary Smith and Chris Ballard and Scott Price. I mean, there's an awful lot of good writing going on right now, even with the profession, uh, you know, it's such a strange place. You know, you mentioned that, and it's unbelievable just the amount of books that are showing up at our doorstep and how good the writing is. I mean, Chris Ballard has a book coming out next week. It's going to be on the, the show to talk about One Shot at Forever. We had the Frank DeFord memoir that came out. Uh, Mark Cram Jr. Uh, has finally written his first book, Like Any Normal Day. Um, you know, it's just it's unbelievable, like you said, the amount of uh, great writing that, that is out there right now. Yeah, and I mean, this is going to sound like, uh, this is going to sound sacrilegious, this is going to sound like heresy, but uh, as long as it stays between us. You know, you, you read some of the other columns from the so-called greats. I mean, read, read a Grantland Rice, Rice column, and, you know, this, this is not something that's particularly well, I mean, I, I think the past has been romanticized a lot. I mean, you know, I, I just pick some of the... Uh, Pick some of the famous names of, of other eras, and you know, I, I defy you to read. I'll pick on Grantland Rice and say I defy you to read one of his columns and tell me that that can hold a candle to anything, you know, that, that's being written right now. It's. Um, I mean, I think I think the quality has really improved. I think the journalism has really improved. And you know, I, I, again, we uh, we hear about sort of the strange state of the profession and. Uh, all the different platforms, but I think for, for writing itself, it's actually at a very strong point right now. You know, it's almost like sports writing has evolved as the games have evolved. You know, you look at a highlight from a 1980s NHL playoff game, and you think, what were the, who were those goalies? My, my nephew could score on them. And then you watch a, a playoff game from the other night, and you see Jonathan Quick, and you see Mike Smith in the way and Henry Lundqvist in the way those guys play the the position, and it's like the evolution of sports has just been incredible. Oh yeah, I mean no, I agree. It's Trumbull, Connecticut's own, but um, no, I, I say the same thing. I mean, I do a lot of tennis, and you you look at you go. Don't take my word. You know, I would tell people like spark up YouTube, and uh, God bless Tracy Austin, but she, you know, she, she's a college tennis player today. Um, you know, we, we see the same thing in the NBA, and obviously some of this is technology and bodies and equipment, and it's not necessarily fair to condemn prior eras. But no, I mean, you know, people, crafts evolve, and whether that's hockey goalie or hitting a tennis ball or, you know, posting up down low. I mean, you know, George Mikan is not playing uh, against Andrew Bynum, and uh, so I think sports writing sort of falls into that too, where the, the, the quality has really gotten a lot better. You know, you had an interesting kind of blurb, we'll call it, in what was a pretty interesting edition of Sports Illustrated last week that focused on Title IX, and you wrote about the tennis match between, was it Riggins and uh, uh, who was the lady that, that played? Help me out. Yeah, Bill, Billie Jean King and Billie Bobby Jean Riggins. King, right, and Bobby Riggins, right. What, is there, could you think of a, a great matchup if they were to have like kind of a, a contemporary version of that match? Um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think people, you know, we have this natural curiosity, men versus, you know, would, how would Serena Williams do against Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer or Djokovic? And then the answer, you know, is probably not particularly well. And, you know, at the end of the day, who cares? You know, if she plays women and they play men. Um, you know, I, I think some of those comparisons 
sort of the, the intergender comparisons don't get us very far. And, you know, I, I like college football. I'd rather watch a good college football team, you know, a, a bad NFL team, even though the NFL team is superior. I'm not sure what, how, how far it gets us. But, um, but what was interesting about the Billie Jean King match, you know, she, she was not playing a contemporary. I mean, she was playing a man in his 50s, and she was, you know, basically the number one player. But there was so much sort of freight to that match. I mean, the, the context of equal rights and the context of sort of the beginning of, of you know, white Gale feminism, it was sort of a, an important match in the moment. But what I wrote about it, the match itself was sort of pure silliness. I mean, the number one, imagine, imagine Serena Williams playing against um, you know, Jimmy Connors right now. And if you want, people would say, yeah, who the hell cares? You know, some former champion long past his prime, what are you proving? But, you know, at the time of that match in, in the early 70s, there was real significance to showing that a woman could beat a man, e- even if the man was, you know, twice twice her age. Yeah, you kind of mentioned in, in your column about how maybe one of the most significant things about that match was just Billie Jean King kind of stopping a bully that he was, he was almost bullying her leading up to the match and, and that she kind of just went out there and stood up for herself in a way. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an entire spectacle where, you know, it would it sort of remind you of any paper, you know, it would have been on pay-per-view had this been uh, happening today and you sort of got to do your marketing and you've got to goose the sales and Bobby Riggs sort of played the part by goading her and, you know, wearing an apron and a bonnet and, it was, the whole thing was this total... Spe- I mean, I think Billie Jean King's bodyguard was George Foreman, and one of the... You know, she came out like Cleopatra. I mean, the whole thing was just a total sort of made-for-TV farcical spectacle, but from this ridiculous moment, there actually was, was a pretty significant social message. You know, next, in a couple of weeks, you'll be headed to Paris for the French Open. What are you going there uh, to see? What, what are... What questions do you have that will be answered in the French Open in a couple of weeks? That's a good question. I mean, one of the great things about tennis is just it, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a Gout Nabby cereal. I mean, there's, there's always plot shifts, and there are always sort of characters that fade in and out, a drama that needs to be resolved. And, you know, if Djokovic will win this, he will have won four straight majors, sort of a, a Novak slam, and cemented the, the number one ranking and his supremacy. Um, you know, this is the one major he has not won. On the other hand, Nadal beat him the last time they played, and Nadal's obviously won the French Open every year, but once since 2005. He's really owned that event, so Nadal versus Djokovic is really sort of the big significant plot line on the men's. You know, also, can, can Roger Federer get back on the board? Remember, he beat Djokovic in Paris last year, and John Isner, the American, is surging and playing well. Um, but mostly it, it sort of comes down to Djokovic and Nadal. On the women's side, it's wide open, as it usually is, but both Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova have both looked very strong of late. Can, can either of them sort of get back on the board? You know, Serena hasn't won a major since Wimbledon 2010. Sharapova hasn't won a major in, you know, almost uh, you know four and a half years now. So can Serena or Sharapova, who are really bigger stars than anyone else, certainly better, bigger stars than number one ranked Victoria Zarenka, certainly bigger star than um, the defending champion Nali. Can, can either of them sort of get back on the board? You know, it's amazing. Nadal is one-to-one to win this tournament on uh, an online sports book. I don't know if I've ever seen that. It's, 
like Tiger Woods in his prime. But, uh, you know, it, it, again, the guy's lost one match in Paris since 2005. So, uh, you know, if, if I, I, I think I might also be inclined to take him over the field. That doesn't, uh, doesn't surprise me given his track record there. What did you think about Djokovic on, uh, on uh, 60 Minutes and uh, how that feature may have helped him emerge as a star in the United States, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, um, you know, as, as a hardcore tennis fan, you weren't going to learn much new from that. But I, still, I thought it was a great sign that 60 Minutes would invest a segment in a tennis player who's, who's a very, very good tennis player, but he's not you know, a kid from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, or Amarillo, Texas. I mean, I, I wish they had done a little more and got a little bit deeper about his ties, you know, vis-a-vis Serbia and Serbian politics and Milosevic. I mean, it sort of glossed over Serbia's, you know, um, controversial recent history. But as far as, you know, get, getting a tennis player who's not from the U.S. to take a 15 minutes of a 60-minute segment, I thought that was great. Are you going to the Olympics after that? I am. There's a, there's a rumor I may be, uh, do, yeah, I, I, I am going to the Olympics. I may be doing some TV work as well, but, you know, I've, you know, I, it's funny, I've never, I've never done an Olympics, and usually it's just because it's, it's a three-week commitment, which is tough, you know, on, on the family, but, you know, my, my kids are old enough now, and it's in London, and I, I sort of said, why not? So I've got, uh, you know, I've got about 22 days in London, and, Late July, early August, really looking forward to it. I guess this is kind of a generic question, but what are you looking like? What events are you? What stories? What are you looking forward to uh, once you get there? Is it is it Michael Phelps? Does that really interest you? Is it something different? Is it the basketball team? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's fun because um, I mean again, I'm a total Olympics rookie, and the tennis this year. I mean, first of all, the the players really are looking forward to the tennis, so it's a significant event, and it's also going to be held at Wimbledon. So that's cool. You know, that, that'll be. I, I think yeah. the tennis will get more attention than it, than it usually does, if nothing else, just because of where it's played. And then, as far as anything else, I mean, you know, I I told them I'm game for anything, but uh, you know, whether it's a dream team or whether it's um, you know, Michael Phelps or Bolt, but I mean, people again, I've, I've never done one of these before, but people say like the Olympic, you just there's there's such a wealth of good stories. I mean, you just no matter what happens, everybody's got a rich backstory. And you go to some, you know, judo match, and you don't know anything about the sport. And six hours later, you not only know the sport, but the backstories of the athletes. So uh, it, it should. Be, I'm looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun, a lot different from what I usually do. I'm looking forward to you sitting down across from Bob Costas after you presented this really sappy piece that you put together, and Bob questioning you about it. I think that would just be a really amazing moment in American television. Is that possible? I'm I'm uh I'm putting in a request for Al Michaels, but we'll uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see. It, I mean, I think I think NBC honestly, I mean, I think everybody's a little bit ambivalent about tennis and to a lesser extent basketball because you know this is those guys get plenty of attention, they make plenty of money. I mean, the Olympics should be about this once every four year experience for that pencil shooter, but at the same time, if you have Serena Williams and Roger Federer and LeBron and Kobe. Um, you know that that drives ratings probably more than you know your rhythmic gymnastics. So we'll we'll see how it all plays out. What has been your take in the past about the coverage in terms of the tape delay versus not tape delay, and NBC's plans to kind of do a compromise and basically do both this year? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the, the ins and outs. I mean, obviously, NBC is in a much different place now with the, with the Comcast acquisition than it was, you know, the last time in, when we were in Beijing. And I think there is this, this realization that tape delay doesn't necessarily work. And people want, you know, people want what they want when they want it. And I think, as I understand it, but I'm, you know, I'm just, I have no inside information here. It's, it's going to be this sort of melding of, of live TV and digital platforms. I and mean, I think they realize you, you can't say, look away from the screen if you don't want to know who wins. But, you know, on the other hand, they paid pretty significant rights fees. Um, you know, it seems only fair that they have their, you know, they, they have the choice of what to broadcast. I ask you this every time. Hopefully, always hoping the answer is different. Do you have a scorecasting update for us? What is the latest yeah. on the scorecasting um, franchise? Funny you say that. I just talked to my uh, co-conspirator right before you called. Um, I don't know. We, we've sort of both been distracted with other projects and some speaking engagements and some other, uh, you know, some, some TV in my case, and it's uh, it's, it's been... I'd be lying if I said we're we're keeping the pace that we'd like, but I guess I guess the one good thing about this whole score testing world is that none of it's particularly time sensitive. Right. So you know, if it takes us a year longer than we had hoped to get out of sequel, we'll, we'll be okay. One of these times, I want you and your partner to come on the show together and like let's just talk scorecasting the whole time, like talk you know winner version and or loss aversion and things like that, and just get really into it. I think that would be really fun. It would be, I'll, I'll speak for Toby and say we'd be happy to do that. It, it's funny, too, because he's, a, uh, you know, he, he's an academic and an esteemed professor, and people think they're getting you know, pocket protectors and bow ties, and then he, he shows up, and he's as you know, he, conversant uh, with, with Will Ferrell movies and uh, Jackass as the rest of us. So he's... Uh, He's, he's good fun. We, we'd be I'm speaking for him and say we'd, we'd be happy to do that. Well, that sounds like it's going to be awesome sometime. Uh, you are going to be pretty much off the grid for a while here. Uh, <laughs> but I want to just say that when you get back from the Olympics, put us near the top of your list of people to talk to because I want to get a full report on that. We'll kind of let you do what you have to do between now and then, and we'll be watching and, and commenting and following along on Twitter. It's at John underscore Wertheim. Anything we can look forward to column-wise before you uh, get out of here in a couple weeks for the tennis and then eventually the Olympics? Um, check out the, in a few weeks, the Sports Illustrated Catching Up With Issue. Um, doing a, an MMA story this week. And uh, tell, tell, tell your brother he should. Uh, I'll, I'll be teaching at his university in the fall if he wants to. Uh, if he wants to sit in on a class. Hey, last thing. What the hell's going on with MMA in New York State? Because we're in New York State, and it's like the only state that won't recognize MMA. Is that any closer to being resolved? I mean, that just seems ridiculous to us. You know, it's like a weekly rumor that it's close and it's not close. I mean, a lot of this is a tie-up with the powerful beverage unions that have no love for the Fertitas, the owners of UFC, because of uh, some union disputes in Vegas. Uh, you know, the, the UFC did not have a great debut in, in New York State in, in the mid-'90s, and I think there's still some sort of peripheral bad feelings. I mean, I, I think it, it, it's really to the point where it's silly, New York's losing out on revenue, and the sport is, the 
officially mainstream that Fox is putting it on in prime yeah. time. Um, you know, I think we're we're sort of past the uh, you know I care the, the John McCain quote that's always recycled about how barbaric it is. I mean, I think this, this, if this is mainstream enough that a network is putting it in prime time, it, it probably ought to be sanctioned in uh, in New York. But I think you know UFC. They, they changed their tune a little bit, sort of week to week, but I think their attitude is, look, I mean, the, the fight last Saturday was in Newark. It's across the river. Sure, we'd love to be in Madison Square Garden. Sure, we'd love to be in Buffalo and Syracuse, but if these legislators are going to tie it up, so so be it. They're still, you know, we'll, we'll get our product out there just fine. So did you see the pay-per-view on Fox? <laughs> or the pay-per-view on Fox? Did you see the event on Fox? Um, you know, I, I did not on Saturday. I didn't see the Mayweather fight either. I was tied up. Uh-huh. I mean, what, what I can't figure out, honestly, I saw the, you know, I saw the John Jones Evans fight, um, you know, two, three Saturdays ago, and I can't figure out why when Fox is paying these rights, uh, the UFC isn't giving them better quality. I mean, the, the ratings on, I know they're disappointed by the ratings on, on Saturday, and I think, you know, some of that obviously is going up against Mayweather, but also, you know, you're, you're, you're giving them Nate Diaz and Jim Miller as your, <laughs> As your headline fight? Yeah, there's... there's... Um, if I were Fox, I would not be pleased about the product I was being given, especially when John Jones and Rashad Evans uh, fought 14 days earlier. And John Jones and Evans are both uh, Western New Yorkers, by the way. One's from Rochester, one's from Niagara Falls, New York. That's right, yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. John Jones still lives in the uh, fighting crucible of Ithaca, New York. Wow. Just down the road. Well, trivia. John, thank you so much. Have a good time in the next couple of months, and we'll talk to you when you get back from the Olympics. Very good. Anytime. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. I want to thank John Wertheim, one of our favorites, for joining us, kind of just to talk about this and that. We like to catch up with John, and we want to get him on before he left. For the French Open, and uh, we're going to let him breathe a little bit because he's got a busy, busy summer ahead of him. But we'll get him back after the Olympics, like we said, and, and find out what his experience was like in London. I think you scared him when you said he was on eight times. Caught him off guard a little bit. <laughs> uh, quick, quick segment today. We didn't want to kind of rush it into three things. We wanted to give it a little bit more time than that, and that is the NHL and the NBA playoffs. Obviously, the NHL is finishing up round two this week, and the NBA is finishing up round one. One thing we can say for certain, we'll start with the NHL, and that is that the Western Conference Finals is set, yep. and the LA Kings are going to play the Phoenix Coyotes, who are going to be the, the home team. They're going to get, as the three seed versus the eight, they're going to get the four home games. And the Kings really have been the story of the playoffs, I think, this year. Uh, they've only played eight nine playoff games. They won 4-1 and 4-0 against the number one and the number two seed. They're the first number eight seed to ever beat the number one and the two seed in the same season. Okay. So they're really doing some incredible things. But, I did, you know, it's funny because way back in when we were doing, in October, when we were doing picks, I picked the Sabres and the Kings to be in the cup. And then the Sabres and the Kings had the seasons that the Sabres and Kings did. The Kings were lucky enough to squeak into the playoffs at the end of the year. The Sabres didn't quite make it. But the Kings have done what I think all Sabres fans are probably so frustrated that their team might have been able to do if they would have just gotten in. 
And I wonder, Don, has the NHL playoffs turned into just get in and then go from there in the last couple seasons? Yeah, we've been talking. Based on the parity in the league. Yeah, we've been talking a little bit about that the last couple of weeks about how if you're the NHL, you probably love it. But if you are, if you want to try to argue that there's any validity to regular season and the regular season records, then this isn't good for it. Because, like I said, over half the teams, you get 16 teams that make the playoffs. That's over half the teams. And now basically the 16th team or whatever it is, the 15th team is looking like the best team in the league right now, or at least the most complete team. So I don't know if it's a matter of uh, the Kings just struggled in the regular season and now they're finding their stride. Because like you said, at the beginning of the year, they were an attractive pick. They they retooled. seem to have everything. They yeah. got a lot of offense, it seems like, even though they didn't show that during the regular season too much. They've got a great goalie. The defense plays solid. Really, really complete team. They look really good now. So it'd be interesting to see what they do in the next round because I've been wrong about every team. Every team that looks like it's shown itself is then f- flipped. We talked about well in the other series. You know, there's nothing really to say about the Blues. Goodbye. You know, thanks for nothing. Yeah, I mean that's a team I liked going into the playoffs because I thought they played playoff hockey. And, and apparent, it seemed like after the first not. round, it had opened up for them. Yeah, a little bit. You know, Detroit was gone, and but you know they couldn't win a game. So goodbye. Nashville and Phoenix, that series was interesting. I think what happened there is Nashville might have won their Stanley Cup when they beat Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, maybe. You know, sometimes you get so focused on one team, and I think Nashville is so focused these last bunch of years of trying to be a team that could beat Detroit that after they did it in the first round, there was a little bit of a letdown, and before they knew it, Phoenix had their foot down their throat. Right, Nashville was a team that, before the playoffs, went for it. They went for it at the deadline. They they gave up a lot for Paul Gossett, which probably isn't going to look very good now, only winning one series. They got uh, Radulov and Kostitsin. Kostitsin, yeah. Just two guys they had to suspend right. for two of the games. Team, Yeah, a team that went for it and fell really, really short. But again, they looked good after beating Detroit, so I don't, I don't know. So that happened. leaves us with Phoenix, who might have an owner now and might stay in Phoenix, and yep. they're whiteouts, versus L.A., and I don't know about you, Don, but for whatever reason, I'm just going to stick with L.A. They've already beaten the one and two seed. Why not the three? Sure. I think this is a great – I think Phoenix has, has – it's a great story for them. This is further than they've ever been as a franchise, even back to their days in Winnipeg. I just – I favor the, the the Kings because I think they have a little bit more of a complete team. Yeah, but I mean, it other, might other, ultimately come down to which of these all-world goalies is going to stop right. more pucks. Because, I mean, if you take the goalies out of it, other than the goalies, if you went to list the best players from both teams, like the top five are going to be Kings, I was going to say right? the next five will probably be Kings before you got to maybe Shane Doan or, right. or the uh, Swedish kid who's really uh, – the Swedish defenseman who's really come into his own and – been a superstar really in the playoffs, but yeah, I expect the experts. Ekman Larson, I think, right, right. Yeah. I expect a lot of uh, of the experts to pick LA to win this pretty soundly. So we'll see what happens. Phoenix has been flying under the radar. We talked about how if the Devils were going to do anything, they were going to have to play like almost like an underdog, or maybe we're talking about Florida. How they would have to play like an underdog role, and it didn't work out for them. It's it's working out for Phoenix for sure. In the Eastern Conference, the New Jersey or the New York. And Washington series has been exactly what I yeah, that's, I thought it was. That's the one series that seems to have been playing out uh, the way everyone expected it to. I picked Washington in the series, so so far I've been wrong, but barely. I mean, what have they had? Two overtime games? I think they've all been one goal. Yeah, games. I mean, the first game was 3-1. Uh, to one. I think that 
There was an empty net goal there. Uh, the second game, Washington won 3-2. to two. Then they had the uh, triple overtime game that the Rangers won, 2-1. to one. Uh, Then Washington got on the board with a 3-2 to two victory with the late power play goal. And then the Rangers saved themselves in what, I swear, it was so eerily similar to what the Sabres did to them in 2007, what the Rangers did to the Capitals All the other right. day. The Capitals are on the road. They have a lead. The Rangers are the you know they're the the Rangers are the top seed. They're about to have this three to two lead going home with a chance to eliminate them, and then the captain of the team, and Callahan, knocks the puck around. The big free agent guy comes in and scores with six point six seconds to go. Drury's goal in Buffalo against the Rangers is seven point seven seconds, but they score <laughs> and then they score a power play goal on a slap shot from the point. And overtime to win it was so eerily similar. Yeah, I think that's it for Washington. It's, I think that was the straw that broke their back. I, but I'm, saying that, it wouldn't shock me if they win two one goal games and 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 win it. Yeah, the problem with the Rangers, they just can't run away from anybody. So even if the rain or the Capitals are down and out mentally, and maybe even physically to some extent. It might not matter because the Rangers just don't have the firepower to put anybody away. And with guys like Ovechkin and Semin and Backstrom and all those those snipers over there, it might be all it takes is one one bounce. Do you think maybe it's time for Washington to open it up a little bit more? I don't know. You know, because it's they tough played to argue so with what they're tight. Doing. It's been such a close series. But I guess what you're asking is, do you want to leave your series up to a coin flip, or do you? I mean, because that's what it's been so far. Is well, what you're doing is you're playing, you're letting each game be played the way the Rangers want to play, play it. Right? Do you want to maybe try and play one on your terms at home when you have the last change? You can get Ovechkin and Summon and Backstrom out there against the guys you want to get them out there against, and maybe be a little bit more aggressive. That's what I would do maybe. in Game Six. It'll be an interesting game. That's tonight, I believe. That so. is tonight, so this could be dated conversation by the time you hear it, but. And the Devils won their series over the Flyers. The Flyers, again, like we said, every team that kind of looked one way ended up not being Yeah, they that just team. completely flamed out. They they looked lousy. All of a sudden, all these guys that were scoring all these goals weren't scoring, and the Devils were. Uh, the Devils are a good team. They, they might be better than people thought. They kind of had to get going a little bit against Florida. but Kovalchuk has been good. They're a team that scores goals, and they have a goalie that's not going to be flustered by the by the big stage so you know what's interesting about Brodeur is he might let a soft goal in but he doesn't let it bother him the way Brzgalov no. does Brodeur lets a soft goal in he's he's so all world that he just knocks the puck out of the net and that's the end of it right you know what I mean a soft goal to him doesn't mean what it means to other goalies I don't think in terms of the rest of the game I was really impressed with the Devils the way that they lost game one in overtime twice I think Danny Briere scored two goals in that overtime. One was called back because he kicked it in. But Oh, yeah, clearly kicked it in. Uh, then they were down without Kovalchuk in the lineup, one to nothing going into the third period in game two. You think if the Flyers can just go out and win this period, they have a stranglehold in this series. Instead, yep. Devils come out and score four goals and never <laughs> look back. Yep. Never look back. So kudos to the Devils. And they're going to be a really tough out for anyone. I Let's just hypothetically speaking, let's say it's the Devils, the Rangers, Coyotes, and Kings. What's your power rankings in terms of most likely to win the cup of those four? 
I think I got to go with the Kings. Like I said, they're for an eighth place team. They all of a sudden look like the most complete team in the playoffs. They have they're solid in every aspect. The Devils might be that that second team. They're also a team that's pretty solid in every area. Uh, they've got the goaltending. They've got the goal scoring. Phoenix would be my lowest ranked team, and then the, the Rangers are just they're too tight. They play they play everybody too close. They're a good team, but you're you're playing with fire when you play like that. That guy that's going to be doing backflips down your street is going to be Gary Bettman if he can ever get a Rangers versus Kings final. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's going to be happy enough to have Rangers versus Devils in the semis if he can get that. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week about how, how he great can't this wait has for been. his Phoenix team to get out of there. <laughs> no, right. But uh, Wyshynski did a great article, like he always does, about uh, all the star power at this at this Stanley Cup playoffs, all the celebrities in the stands. That yes, was, I saw that. It was pretty cool to see. Not just Carrie Underwood. More than that. No, Kate Upton and uh, some rapper. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah and, and all uh, sorts of people. So check out his blog to see that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the NBA. You know, here's what I'd say about the first round of the NBA playoffs. Yawn. Uh, San Antonio just totally swept out Utah for a zip. Oklahoma, Oklahoma City totally swept out Dallas and what Bill Simmons called one of the top six worst title defenses of all time. <laughs> um, Indiana, after losing game one to Orlando, the Darren, uh, the Howard List Orlando team got rid of that. I guess if four. anything, the... The dominance, the one-sidedness, I should say, it's not hasn't exactly been dominance. Leads uh, leaves a lot of chances for history to be made for teams coming back in series. But yeah, you're right. Uh, other than the Bulls, I don't even know if I would really say there were many many upsets. But yeah, the Bulls it, are so injured. That, yeah, the the Bulls thing is basically you know their best player went down with an ACL in Game One, and the question is, can their team recover in time to pull off the upset? And if they do, does it matter? Because can they win another round? I don't know. But I'm really excited about what the Clippers have done. Chris Paul's been great. Yeah, Blake Griffin's yeah. been good. be really interesting to see. I'm really interested to see how long these three teams can keep it going in the Staples Center. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, a, that's an interesting uh, backstory. There. If I was Lee Jenkins and I was down in L.A., I might follow around like a concession lady for you know, a couple days, <laughs> do a story on what it's like to work in this arena while, because they've had two games Lakers a day a couple times now, a couple of Sundays in a row. I think they've had, you know, two games. I wonder how the ice is there. Probably not good. No, I wouldn't yeah. think so. Uh, the Lakers in the in Denver played a great game last night. Kobe Bryant had a chance at the buzzer to tie it up. Didn't go down for him. He did have, yep, I think, 48, 48 points. So Denver stayed alive. There's a couple game game sixes, but I don't think there's going to be any game sevens, to be honest. I think Boston's going to take care of Atlanta. I think Miami's going to find a way to take care of New York. I think Philadelphia's going to win that series at home. I think Clippers are going to take care of business and Lakers. So I think what we're going to have is a lot of chalk, minus the fact that the Bulls are going to be a casualty based on their injuries. But this is what we talked about a little bit last week, too, and we just mentioned about how there's so much parity in the NHL like to the point that it almost feels broken, like the regular season is. I remember the season that the Sabres uh, lost in the conference finals and Carolina went on to win the Stanley Cup. First year after the lockout. Right. The following year, it's like, ugh. 
I got to sit through a regular season now to get back to this. I mean, we know we're good. We know we're going to make the, right. the playoffs. Let's just go to the playoffs. And, I mean, they started with a nice run. It was like a nice Tiny distraction. Yep. They ended up winning the whatever. But in basketball, it's not that way. It seems almost exactly the opposite, where the teams that finish in the top are the teams that end up winning everything. So, I mean, I don't know which one is better. I read a really interesting article about how they love – I think it was might have been Phil Taylor back page SI about how the sixty six game season was just absolutely perfect. Yeah. How it'd be great for them, even if they wanted to go up to say seventy, but to trim some of the games off the way they did. Owners will never do it. No, they won't. But just a lot of people have thought this has been a great NBA season. So hopefully what is gonna happen is they're gonna trim off some of the dead weight at the bottom in this first round. And then we're going right. to have some really great series in round two and round three, and then ultimately the finals. Yeah. So I guess what I was, what I was getting at is like, do you prefer to see a series where Oklahoma city just stomps a team that's nowhere near its caliber or the Pacers go out and stomp all over Orlando, you know, I wish or the NHL where sevens and eights win all the time. You know, I think that those are the nature of the sports. And I think what the NBA did that was a mistake was they changed the first round from a five gamer to a seven. Yeah, they should have kept it at the five gamer because then you know it's it's a lot easier for those teams to dismiss the weaker teams, and I I always thought that that was the perfect format, and I was surprised when they upped the first round to seven games. It just didn't seem necessary. One thing I'll say that the NBA is doing a better job of this year is how it usually seems like it's spread out like crazy. Uh, the first round, they're. Some teams are finishing. When, yeah. Right. It seems like they did a better job. One thing I don't like about the NBA playoffs is they don't reseed. It's bracketed. Huh. So no matter what, the Spurs are going to play the Clippers or Grizzly, and the Thunder are going to play, no matter what, the Lakers or the Nuggets. And then on the other side, the Pacers are waiting to play either the Heat or the, the Knicks, Knicks yeah. and then... The Bulls, Sixers, Celtics, and Hawks will figure out that top part. What, so they don't recede, which is interesting. What's interesting about that to me is people have always asked, "How do you make? Or how I would make hockey more watchable, or not watchable? I love hockey, but popular, maybe more mainstream." And my thought was always, you know what, bracket the playoffs because it gives people something to bet on. But you know what, I'm not an NBA guy, and I didn't even know that they did that in the NBA. So. Apparently, it's not that popular to bet on NBA brackets. And what could happen is, and it could happen this year, is the eighth seed in the 76ers could beat the Bulls because of circumstance. Right. And then, let's say the five seed, the Hawks, beat the Celtics. And then the two and the three seed win. Yeah. You have the the two and three playing and the eight playing the five, and that seems a little silly to me. But that's the way they do it. There's a guy... uh, a local radio guy, Mike Shope, who likes the idea of, and he was talking about in terms of the NHL, but maybe this would be cool in any playoffs, is where if you finish first in your conference, you get to pick your opponent. And then the second-place team picks an opponent, and the third-place team picks their opponent, and the fourth-place team picks their opponent. Because that, I mean, that adds drama. That adds locker room fodder. Uh, it would be an interesting way to do it, other than the way they kind of, not arbitrarily do it now, but the way it's, seems random in the NHL or at least meaningless in the NHL and in the NBA. It's like you said, with a, you get one bad injury in the bulls and all of a sudden the 76ers might have a nice, a nice path here. All right. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back with Dan Wolken.
Our next guest is from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. After college, he spent five years in Colorado covering NCAA hockey, the Denver sports scene, and the Air Force Academy for the Colorado Springs Gazette. He has also covered Memphis basketball for the Commercial Appeal. Today, he is a national sports columnist for the made-for-iPad newspaper, The Daily. The Daily is now available on the iPhone and Android tablets. His work has been honored with awards from the Associated Press Sports Editors and the Colorado Press Association. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the fourth time to the very talented Dan Wolken. You know, Dan, since we had you on last time, the the daily iPad app has become the daily iPad and iPhone app. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that process? Uh, we started on the iPad, and, and it was always going to... Uh you know, not be contained just to that device and that um, they wanted this thing to, to uh, be big on, on all different kinds of uh, PDAs. So uh, I, I think it's really cool and, and um, it's got a very good response so far. So that's quite exciting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how this idea of, you know, let's build the, the, the app was originally built from the ground up for the iPad, right? So has it do you think it's translated pretty well as they've expanded it to other platforms? Sure. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the tablet or the iPad uh, version was uh, the original idea. Um, but, you know, part of building a brand in the news business is making, making it available on different platforms. We've also um, got stories that uh, have been available on the web. We also have a, a Facebook social uh, news app. And I think that all goes to brand building, and um, I think they've been very, very successful so far at uh, making sure we're, we're available um, on all different kinds of uh, devices because, um, you know, the iPad is by far and away the number one uh, tablet in, in the country in terms of um, what people are, are buying and the brand they associate it with. But, uh, uh, you know, there, we wanted – I think the idea, and I'm speaking for, for – uh, you know the people who, who developed this. I came in uh, more toward the end, but the idea was was always to to make sure that um, other other devices were going to have a shot to um, you know to to get this uh, wonderful app and, and this wonderful service uh, in addition to just the Apple products. Does anything change for you when the daily adds another platform, or for you is it just great? There's more eyeballs on this column. That's yeah, kind of what it is, and. Um, I, I, you know, from my perspective, um, I, I'm just focused on, you know, writing a good sports column uh, three or four times a week or however many times I write. And, uh, you know, in that sense, it's a little bit the same as, as it was when I was working in a newspaper. Um, you know, the only thing that, that changes with the web or with um, tablets is just kind of the, uh, the, the immediacy and the time of day people look at, at what you write. And, and the nice thing about the tablets is they have all sorts of metrics to measure um, how many people are reading a particular story, how much time they're spending, how much how much they're interacting with it. Um, so those things are, can all be very instructive in terms of um, knowing what what's popular and, and what you need to be writing about, as opposed to a newspaper where you just have less of an idea typically of uh, uh, of what kind of uh, stuff people respond to. You know, of all the times we've had you on the show, one thing that we've never talked about is hockey. I mean, maybe a couple times you mentioned in your past that you had covered NCAA hockey, but I've been really surprised following you on Twitter. I always say that at Dan Wolken is one of the best 
Twitter feeds out there in the sports media. It seems like you've been really into the NHL playoffs this year. Is that because of your background in Memphis and uh, the Predators being a part of it this year? Or have you always been an NHL playoffs fan? Well, no, I've always liked hockey quite a bit, uh, and I covered it um, both at the collegiate level and the NHL level. So um, I've always, you know, through those avenues, uh, kept an eye on it. But playoff hockey is is fantastic. And, um, you know, this time of year, NBA playoffs, typically first-round series, aren't so great. Um, They're, you know, most of them aren't as competitive. But in the NHL playoffs, and it's pretty well always been this way, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, there's so much parity in that league that uh, regardless of the seeding in, in any sort of series, both teams have a pretty good chance to win. It's just kind of who shows up and plays, who gets a break here or there, um, how good the goaltenders playing. And, and it makes for some pretty compelling uh, TV, I think. And, and so far, I think the NHL playoffs have been much more exciting than the NBA playoffs uh, this particular year. And, and yeah, sometimes uh, it goes back and forth. Last year I was a little more interested in the NBA, but uh, this year I, I've just, uh, for whatever reason, from from day one of the, of the playoffs, the, it's just been really compelling. And um, you know, generally speaking, I like hockey anyway. I'm I'm not one of those guys who sits who sits there every day of the week during the regular season and watches it. But um, come playoff time, uh, I, I like it. I always enjoyed covering the playoffs, uh, mainly with the Colorado Avalanche, covering them a couple of years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really, I think it's a great product they put out uh, on the ice. And um, when, when both teams play, you know, plays hard and as desperate as they do during the playoffs, even though scoring is down a little bit, which is unfortunate, I think that the, the dramatic, uh, the, there, there's been a lot of drama, I, I think, in each series. Um, and, and within the individual games, they, they've all been pretty pretty competitive. So, uh, so I like it quite a bit. You know, the, the playoffs have been doing pretty well. In, in ratings, pretty much every game except for that Kings and Blues game on Sunday is done pretty much above what NBC or the NBC Sports Network had done in the past. And I wonder, as someone who's maybe more interested in it this year than past years, what do you think it is that has drawn you in? Was it the shortened basketball season that maybe led you to the NHL this year? Or is it the more physical play in the playoffs this year or do you have a theory on why they're doing so much better is it just having a committed partner who's promoting this like crazy i think it's probably a couple factors one the the hockey has been very good and the playoffs started where um there was a lot of uh you know there was a lot of intense action on the ice and um a lot of controversy about uh whether hits were dirty or not dirty or players who should be suspended. And um, a lot of these games, especially that Pittsburgh-Philadelphia series, uh, teams are just going at each other. And um, especially, you know, when it comes to, to social media now, you know, people are watching these games and it's, hey, you got to, you know, this is crazy what's going on in the Pittsburgh-Philadelphia game. You got to watch it. And so people start watching it and it, it spreads. So I think that has an impact. Um, I also think um, the, the teams involved, the markets involved, um, you've had you know the Rangers in the mix, you've had the LA Kings, um, so I think that's been a positive. And then I think also NBC people are, are now used to NBC uh, hosting the NHL, uh, and I think that's a big part of it too. And, you know, it's not on ESPN, but uh, for years 
people kind of lampooned the idea that the NHL was being played on versus on the versus network. Um, but, uh, you know, hockey fans and hockey fans are pretty committed, uh, as it is. I think they migrated over there and got used to it. And, and, you know, I think now NBC does a good job promoting it, especially on NBC sports network. And, and, you know, it just takes time. I think when, when a league changes networks to, to kind of, you know, secure that audience and get them conditioned to, to coming to that channel. And I think that's, that slowly happened bit by bit with the NHL. You know, one thing that's maybe a more conventional topic that we discuss when you're on the program is college football. And this summer, it's been quite exciting for college football fans as it seems like we're inching closer and closer to some form of a four-game playoff. Uh, if you were able to implement a four-team playoff plan, what would it look like? Well, you know, I'd prefer eight. If I, if I could pick any number, I think eight's probably the perfect number of teams for a college football playoff. It gives you three weeks of games. Um, I think you could do the first round on, on campus sites for the higher seeds. Uh, I think you could do the second round, uh, maybe involve the bowl games, uh, major bowl games, for the semifinals, and then the championship game, you know, you bid out like the Super Bowl. And, and so, uh, you know, literally any city, Indianapolis or, or Detroit or, or whoever could, could host it if they, if they got a bid that was, uh, that was good enough. And I think that would be a great format. I think it would include that, that would allow, you know, all the major conference champions to be involved as well as maybe some teams that didn't win their conferences uh, or, or, you know, uh, a team from outside one of the power conferences who, who maybe had an undefeated season. It would give you a couple wild cards there that, that could be involved. And I just think in the end, what, what people want to see out of a playoff uh, is the idea that, that if you have a, undefeated season, if you don't lose any of your games, uh, and no matter what league you play in, that, that you have a chance to prove that, that you can be a national champion. Um, you know, whether it's uh, the Boise teams that went undefeated, whether it was uh, a couple of those TCU teams, Utah, whomever, I think people fundamentally did not like the idea that those teams had no chance to be in the championship game. Uh, and so I, I, I would prefer a system that allows those teams um, a, a solid opportunity every single year. Um, I don't know that you're going to get that with a 14 playoff. Uh, you might in some years, depending on how the numbers work out. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what the fight comes down to regarding who gets in. And, um, you got one side of the, uh, of the college football world that says, okay, the four best teams. Well, okay, who, who are the four best teams? How do you determine the four best teams? Is it a, is it a panel? Do you use the, the, the BCS rankings or computer rankings or polls? Or how, how do you do that? And if you do that, you have to acknowledge that just saying, well, these are the four best teams is, is a flawed system because we don't know who the four best teams are. There's no way to know for sure. You can certainly compare resumes and say, um, you know, this one lost team had a little better strength of schedule than that one lost team or, or had better wins or had better losses or had an earlier loss. But there's really no way to say, especially when you're talking about who the, you know, the fourth place team is that should be in the playoff, who's the fourth best team. It's very, very hard to determine that to me. Um, so, you know, do you do a conference champions only? There's, there's certain people who want that. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, there's some years with a conference champion from, um, some of these leagues aren't very good, or, or you're like last year where Alabama was was the best team but didn't win their conference. So 
I don't know how it's all going to shake out. That's going to be one of the big fights with the commissioners. Uh, Jim Delaney's proposed a plan that kind of mixes both ideas and that um, if there's four conference champions ranked in the top six, uh, that you, that's who you take. You take the four highest-ranked conference champions as long as they're in the top six of any conference. I think that idea has some merit. Um, it, it also gives you an opportunity, if, if, if you're a Boise State, you, you go undefeated uh, and you're in a, to, to be in the top four and, and, and get in the playoffs. So um, it would also, if things break right, allow for an Alabama last year to get in too. Um, but, you know, that system's going to leave some people out some years as well. So there's just no perfect way to do it. Um, and, and that's kind of why I like going to eight, because I think it gives every team that could reasonably have an opportunity to win a national title uh, an opportunity to, to, to go in there and win three games and, and call themselves national champions. You know, one thing I think about the fourteen system is if they do use a committee and the committee does stress, stress strength of schedule, it could encourage some of the teams to play stronger non-conference schedules and we might get more exciting college football in October and September. It might, but you could also say the same thing about if you just use conference champions only because uh, at that point, it's what, what really matters is your is your conference games. Your non-conference games don't matter as much, uh, and and so maybe people wouldn't be quite as afraid to to uh, to lose. I think also going to an 18 playoff would it would improve the the non-conference schedules because it just provides you more opportunity if you have a if you have a good season um, to to survive losing one or or even you know maybe two games under certain scenarios. So I I would say. You know, in a perfect world, everybody would be willing to go play, you know, the best teams. But uh, we know that that's not the way it works. The, the power programs don't want to challenge themselves in the non-conference schedule because they know if they lose in week one, like Oregon get, did to LSU last year, that you're basically out of contention for the national title. So um, I, I don't know if there's a, a perfect way to solve that with, with any of these playoff scenarios. Um, but uh, certainly with an 18 playoff or, or, or a 16 team playoff, um, I think people would have a lot more incentive to uh, to beef up their schedules. What was the first thing that went through your mind when you heard that Junior Seau committed suicide? Um, you know, unfortunately, probably just you know this is another guy who uh, played in the NFL who had had problems, and and yeah, my my mind immediately went to. Um, you know, is it because of the of the hits he took? Is it because of the concussions? And did he have some sort of you know brain defect uh, brought on by you know, years and years of of getting hit in the head? And um, we don't know, and we may never know, and it may be unfair to immediately go to that. But but there's a precedent for it, and um, there's there's been a number of guys, especially lately, who um, you know who've had those those sort of demons. Uh, and and so it's, I just think it's impossible to think about about Junior Seau uh, without knowing all the facts, of course. But it's impossible not to immediately go to that and, and wonder if um, if something if something in his his career or um, the accumulation of, of hits over his career played played a role. You know, I don't I don't have a son, and I don't know if you do, and I'm not sure that it matters. But it's been surprising to me how since this has happened, how much. Talk there's been about, you know, would you as a parent, quote unquote, allow your son to play football? I, I, I'm a young parent. I'm not a parent yet, but I assume that if my kid wants to play football, I'll I'll let them. But 
Because, I mean, you could get injured doing anything. What's your thoughts? Well, I'm not surprised about the discussion. In fact, I wrote a column the day afterwards kind of predicting that, that this would change a lot of things about the way people people look at football because, say, I was a, was a big name and uh, a guy that people remember playing just a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, we've now heard enough about uh, this issue and, and, and safety and player safety and, and the effects of, of concussions that uh, this is now becoming very real and becoming a very real way of, for uh, a very real element for the way people watch watch the game, and and you, know, you you never really watched a game before, thinking to yourself, you know, what are these guys doing to themselves? But I think a lot of people now kind of do look at do look at football that way and, and think about it when they watch the game. And so yeah, it's only natural that um, given this mountain of evidence that that the game is is potentially hazardous uh, to to the long term health of of, uh, of people's brains that there's going to be a backlash, uh, especially from, from parents uh, wh- whose kids are, are uh, you know, are wanting to play football. And, and also remember, at the, at the lowest levels, you know, the high school, junior high, Pop Warner, y- you have the least amount of sophistication in terms of medical staff and equipment and, uh, and all those things to make determinations on, on whether it's, it's even safe for, for kids to, to play. I and, mean, you know, if you're in a high school game and you get a concussion, Who's going to be there on the sideline telling you whether it's okay to go back in? Certainly not somebody who's as knowledgeable and as qualified as, as, as in the NFL or, or even in college. So um, this is uh, this is an issue that I think I think people and, and especially parents they have to give very careful consideration to it. And, and yeah, there are plenty of sports where where you could get injured. There's no question about that. But in terms of repeated uh, blows to the head, um, you talk about boxing. You talk about football uh it's not the same in hockey it's not the same in basketball it's not the same in baseball uh so i do i do think there's a legitimate concern there do you think that the nfl being at the top of this is doing enough in terms of research and development and those kinds of things to prepare for this next wave of potentially skeptical parents and players well, I think they are now, and I think they have to. Um, and I think they, they realize as, as a league that, that they're in serious danger of, of a, a massive lawsuit against them, against them with, uh, uh, these, these, you've already had former players, um, file lawsuits suing the NFL, uh, for damages, um, based on the notion that the league knew about player, uh, about potential, uh, health hazards and, and did nothing about them or, or didn't do enough to, uh, uh, you know, to warn players of, of the uh, potential dangers. And, uh, you know, it's shaping up to potentially be um, the kind of landmark lawsuit that, you know, that eventually got the tobacco industry. It's kind of the same thing. And, and, and football, I think, is bracing itself uh, for, that, for that same kind of moment. And that's why the NFL now is taking such a serious stance on, uh, on hits to the head, on uh, illegal hits, on uh, the bounty issue, on, on the bounties, yeah, there's no question. So, uh, so I think the NFL understands the seriousness of this, and that's why, um, you know, now they're they're doing more than they've ever done. And my dog was very, very upset that the uh, Federal Expressman had the nerve to pull up in in the middle of this interview, and <laughs> uh, was was voicing his displeasure there. I don't know if you could hear that, but, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, do you think that the commissioner? 
when he went and, and made these suspensions for the Saints and the bounty, and we kind of mentioned it, he had this in mind. Not necessarily, oh, Junior Seau is going to die, but the NFL is going to have to defend itself here soon as to what we're doing in terms of headshots and violence in the game. So we need to be as firm as possible. And I guess as a part B, do you think they were firm enough with the players that they suspended? Or did you expect there to be more? I don't know. I just kind of felt like it came kind of flat, only being the four players well, and two Saints. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to judge what, what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate in terms of, of the suspension of players. And, and I'd have to you know take a closer look at, at all the evidence that the NFL had on each specific guy. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I, I think there's no question that, that they're being extra vigilant about uh, – uh, about sending a message uh, in terms of, of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable um, because of exactly this, because um, they know this perception's out there. Um, they know that there's potential legal consequences and, uh, and, and also that, you know, public sentiment at a certain point is going to turn from, you know, people saying, yeah, the NFL, there's always a risk of when you get out there on the field and, and everyone chooses to take that risk uh, there's a there's a fine line between that and people watching the NFL and saying, are these guys literally killing each other out there on the field? And uh, I, I think the pendulum has started to swing a little bit to the latter, and that's why the NFL is, is so concerned and, and why they're being so uh, they, they they want to send a message that they're serious about player safety. Um, so I think I think this is all tied in together. Everything we've seen in the last couple of years. The guest has been Dan Wilkin from The Daily, which is an app for the iPad, the iPhone, and the Android tablet. You can find him on Twitter, at Dan Wilkin. Dan, what uh, what can we be looking for here in the next couple of weeks or so? Well, you know, i got a couple of columns uh, coming out the next couple of weeks. Should be, uh, you know, should be interesting and thought-provoking. I'm going to be at the Preakness uh, next week, cover, cover that event. Were you at the uh, Derby? And then... I'm sorry. Were you at the Derby? No, I was not. I was not at the Derby. Uh, couldn't couldn't make it there. Had some other stuff going on, but I will be at the Preakness, uh, and then uh, you know, I jump back into the NBA playoffs. I guess a little bit after that. Who uh, who do you got in the finals in the NBA playoffs? If I pressed you for it right now, I think Miami's got a pretty easy path. I think they're going to walk into the finals, uh, and then uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up playing Oklahoma City. Um, I, I just don't think the Lakers have enough to beat them in a seven-game series. Uh, and it should be a really interesting Western Conference final with the Spurs. Um, but I, I just believe Oklahoma City, this is their year to get to the finals. And if that's the matchup, uh, Miami and Oklahoma City, then I think there's plenty plenty there to write about. It, it would be extremely compelling. Thanks for doing it, Dan. We always appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thanks, man. All right, I want to thank all of our guests today, the great Frank DeFord, John Wertheim, and Dan Wilkin for being on the podcast today. Uh, again, this is Season 2, Episode 18. Don't forget, next week, Season 2, Episode 19, will feature an interview with John Smoltz, Tom Verducci, and Chris Ballard. Let's not get much better than that. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us. 
sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs are thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. You can find all this information at www.sports-casters.com. I will be writing a blog this week about the Behind the Moves book on NHL GMs, which we told you about earlier. You can find that that book if you'd like to purchase one at nhlgms.com. You were uh, thanking people. I'd like to quickly thank myself for not messing Completely getting a stat wrong and having us have to re-record an entire segment. So right. that's That has not happened. No, good for me today. Good job, Don. Uh, also, don't forget, Episode 6 of the Football Nation Sportscasters podcast will be yes, available uh, tomorrow. Greg Cassell is the guest. He's from NFL Films. He spent 32 years there. Fascinating guest. We'll look forward to that. You can find that at www.footballnation.com. All right. Last piece of business for today is pick four. Last week we both went three and one. I had the Kings over the Blues four to two, the Heat over the Knicks eighty seven to seventy, and David Price and the Rays over Oakland seven to two. My only loss was I thought the Coyotes would sweep. Uh, they won in five. That brings me to forty one and thirty two on the year. Don also went three and one with the Kings over the Blues four to two, Preds over the Coyotes two to nothing, and the Kings sweeping the Blues. His only loss was Westbrook and the Cardinals losing to the Pirates, who finally scored some runs that day. Six to three, that brings him to thirty-three and forty-two. And the game of the week is all right. My game of the week this week is the Hawks at the Celtics. It's one of those game sixes we talked about earlier. Um, look, this is the Celtics have been the were the better team during the regular season, and this is what you or no, they weren't actually because they're home for game six, right? Uh, but they're the five seed. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna. I'm going to take the Celtics and cut my losses there. Uh, this is Thursday, TNT at 8 p.m. I'm going to take the Celtics as well. The Hawks did well to battle to earn another game in Boston, uh, winning 87-86 to 86 the other day. Uh, but I think Boston is going to close this one off, and I'm going to tell you more about why I went this way in a minute. My host choice game is also a Thursday basketball game. It's the Bulls at the 76ers. Again, I'm going to take the 76ers to close out the Bulls. The Bulls just have too many injuries. Uh, the Sixers are at home. Uh, that game's Thursday, 7 o'clock on NBA TV if you get NBA TV. So check that out. All right, I'm going to take game six, Lakers over the Nuggets. That's Thursday at 1030 on TNT. I'm going to take the Lakers to close it out. The Nuggets, I thought, played their best game last night. And Kobe Bryant almost ruined that on them. I think the Lakers are going to come out and, and they're going to close out the Nuggets. They're not going to want to mess around with the Game 7. My pitcher of the week this week is a guy that looks pretty healthy after his pretty significant injury, and that's Steven Strasburg. He's 2-0, 1.66 ERA. It's been awesome. Uh, he's pitching against the Pirates. So I guess I'm going against the Pirates again, and for whatever reason that seems to bite me in the ass. But... Uh, Pirates, again, they've been pitching really well. does not get any run support, but I'm going to take the Nationals to get enough runs to beat the Pirates behind Steven Strasburg. I'm going to take Roy Halladay, or Halladay, excuse me, in the Phillies. Going with studs today. 3-2 and two with a 3.28 ERA over the Padres. Joe Weiland, who's 0-4, the 4.550. I just, like I said, I was frustrated that I was 2-0 and then 2-2. Two and two. I want to go to 4-2 and two in this. So I'm going to use another stud. Take Halladay. Yeah, somehow, I mean, betting, they always say that betting baseball is the easiest because you're betting pitchers, and somehow I'm, I think, two and three. So I got to get back on the ball here. 
All right, my bold prediction is going against your last prediction, and I'm going to say that the Nuggets win the series over the Lakers. Interesting. Uh, I think it would be somewhat historical. I think only maybe I heard earlier like five teams have come back from down three. I think they've been down, were down three to one, they and were. that's what they would basically have to do. So, I mean, that's why they're bold. I suppose they get the game six at home, and then you to put the pressure on the Lakers, and then they right? get to put the pressure on the Lakers. So, win a home game. I'm going to say that there will be no Game 7s in the NBA's first round. Kind of bold of me since there's a bunch at 6 already and it only takes one game to lose. But like we said, that's the point. And I remember a couple of days ago asking on Twitter how many people, how many series people thought would force a Game 6. And a lot of people said that they would take the under if it was 2. Wow. So... Again, that goes to show how the the lack of parity in the NBA or how top heavy it is. Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the top heavy and say that these teams are gonna close the other teams out and that we won't get a game seven at all. Yeah, and I mean I don't know how long ago you asked it, but the Bulls probably would have been one of those teams that maybe weren't wouldn't have this trouble that they're having now if had they not gotten the injuries they did. Yeah. All right. So don't forget, next week, episode nineteen, John Smoltz, Tom Verducci, Chris Ballard. Again, I want to thank Stitcher Radio for everything they've been doing to help the podcast the last few weeks. Don't forget about Episode 6 of the Football Nation podcast featuring Greg Cassell at www.footballnation.com. Don, cue the hip. We are out. All right.